The objective of this framework is to make sure that countries come together at an early stage and make sure that the collective policies they're pursuing are not going to lead to unsustainable imbalances, are going to make sure we're less vulnerable to future cycles of booms and busts. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. Very excited to have a special guest co-host. Hello. I'm Caitlin Kenny, Planet Money's producer, in front of the mic today instead of behind. Today is Friday, September 25th. That was Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, you heard at the top, talking about the B20, I mean G20. And anyway, that's the subject of today's podcast. But first, the Planet Money Indicator. The indicator, Caitlin, is a strange one today because... It is not a number. It's a sentence. Weird. Or technically, it's a sentence fragment. It is the words, greater force than is customary. Those are the words of Kevin Warsh. And Adam tells me they may be the five most important words to the world economy spoken this year. Big deal. It's a big deal because Kevin Warsh is a Federal Reserve governor. He's known to be a very close advisor to Ben Bernanke. And he gave a speech today in Chicago that you can be sure investors and central bankers and policy watchers all over the world will be studying carefully because he said, basically, that the Fed is probably going to raise their core Fed funds interest rate before people think they will and, as he said, with greater force than is customary. So I know you speak central banker, but I'm still learning. And I think what he's saying is that Alan Greenspan screwed up. That is exactly what he's saying, Caitlin. Yes. He's saying that this whole housing bubble, the whole bubble bursting, the crisis happened in large part because Greenspan kept interest rates way too low for way too long. So he said this time the Fed learned its lesson and sooner than you think they will raise rates fast. Which means businesses and consumers and everyone will have to pay higher interest rates to borrow money, which will slow the economy down a bit. We have no idea when or how much, but we know it'll be more and faster than we thought. All right. So moving on to topic number two, the G20 summit. The leaders of the 20 richest nations in the world are in Pittsburgh this week having a meeting. When you have a meeting with the 20 leaders of the 20 richest nations in the world, you have to give it a cool name. So they call it the G20. So creative. It's very creative. I think G stands for government. Oh, yeah. Um, now, we used to hear a lot about the G7 or the G8. Uh, the way I think about it is G7, those are countries you're going to visit. You're not going to you're not going to worry that much about what you bring because you don't need like anti-malaria medicine. You, you can, can just, find a way for your cell phone to work. Your cell phone's going to work. You're going to have an ATM card. You know, we're talking about U.S., U.K., uh, you know, Japan, rich, rich countries, Germany, China. Uh, but the G20, you start bringing in countries that have rich parts and really, really poor parts. Brazil, India, Turkey, countries where you can have a real first world experience or you can have a more developing world experience. And you might be a little nervous about the you know, hospital system, that kind of thing. But the G20 is meeting now to discuss a whole range of economic issues, uh, obviously first and foremost among them, the future of financial market regulation. But the big news is they're saying that the G20, the, the bigger group, 
they are now the central body. That's the that's the main group to decide how the world economy works. No longer is it the G8. More people at the party. Exactly. Of course, some people have been saying they should do this for a while now. The White House said today, this decision brings to the table the countries needed to build a stronger, more balanced global economy, reform the financial system, and lift the lives of the poorest. Sounds like a natural thing to do. We checked in with our friends at Eurasia Group, the political economy consulting group, to see what they have to say about all this. I talked to David Gordon. He's the head of research at Eurasia Group and asked him to remind us what the G7, G8 was to begin with? The G7, G8, when it began, I think uh, about 30 or 35 years ago, uh, it began as the G5, I believe. Uh, and it was really the first effort to, to really do serious macroeconomic coordination, policy coordination among the world's leading economies. But it hasn't really had a major economic policy coordination role, really for, I'd say, a good 20 years. So I think this effort uh, to uh, basically displace the G7, G8 uh, with the G20 is, first of all, I think, well-intentioned. This is the right thing to do, that, that the, the G7, G8 construct uh, was too narrow a set of countries to have around the table. And I think the danger here was that you were going to have both of these things alive at the same time. And I think the concern on the Obama administration was that this would just take up literally too much high-level time and effort and be redundant. So I give them credit and I give the G20 credit for, for really saying, this is it, we're no longer going to do the G7, G8, it's going to be the G20. Uh, that said, how much actual real coordination and collaboration you get out of it is an open question. I think it's a useful instrument for having discussions, for, for, for clarifying issues, for raising issues. But it, this is a very disparate set of countries, uh, and, and I think if it, it was hard to get coordination among the G7, it's going to be much harder to get it among the G20. But it doesn't mean that it's not a useful thing to do once or twice a year to have this particular set of leaders meet, interact, talk about both uh, big financial and economic issues and uh, larger issues that face the world, uh, the world at large. So, so before, say, 19, the mid-1970s, right. We had the Bretton Woods system. We had a gold standard. That's uh, right. And, and, and that really was some firm rules that – That's right. That's, that, that created that, – those were some firm rules that, that defined global international economic uh, cooperation yeah. and activity. And the U.S. was still by far the dominant actor on the scene. Uh, so that combination of a, a structured system, firm rules, and a real G1, G1 that, that was the world before the creation of the G5, what became the G7. Because right. we started having, I mean, Europe, post-Marshall Plan, get, becoming obviously a power, Japan hurling right. on the stage. Exactly. Yeah. And then, um, and then eventually, um, of course... Russia right. became capitalist, and, and and China obviously. We're hearing about them, and India, and Brazil, and and uh, 
and but but what we have is a we have a lot more players. We have a much more chaotic, less structured global economy. Is that much fair? more chaotic and much less structured? And I think in the in the aftermath of the financial crisis, that becomes even more so, because what the financial crisis does is it really undermines the legitimacy and the influence of the U.S. financial model and of inherent U.S. leadership in this whole system. And so I think we're heading into a world that just has a lot more economic diversity in it. And the high tide of free market reforms that we've seen in the last 25 or 30 years is really now uh, ebbing. Uh, and, and we're going to have a more diverse world. That's why I think this is a good thing, even if it doesn't lead to a lot of coordination, that, that getting these diverse voices engaging uh, in a periodic way will be useful, but expectations of actual concrete achievements, I think, have to be kept modest. So there's never been more of a need for something like the G20 to coordinate the global economy, and it's never been less likely that they could actually coordinate the global yeah, economy. Yeah, I think that's right. I think actual coordination of the global economy is an expectation too far. So the, the need is that you have a forum in which the, the leaders can, can talk about issues, can engage in debates, can see, can begin to move towards consensus if possible, can highlight areas of concern in which uh, caution has to be taken. And I think that's going to be really the role of the G20. I think that, that the, the first two meetings, the meeting at the end of last year that President Bush hosted, and then the meeting in April that, that uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown hosted, those were in some ways exceptions because those were really crisis-driven events. Uh, whereas what we're seeing now, I think, is likely to be the transition meeting towards a more institutionalized, uh, more normal set of meetings among the leaders. All right, David, thank you so much. And this will be something for us at Planet Money to pay a lot of attention to. I know, obviously, Eurasia Group, this will be a major issue for you guys yes. as well. And we'll be talking about it throughout the coming years because uh, I think, for me, this is one of the most fascinating things about where we are. I mean, if you if you look at modern financial history, you have these periods of, of, a, of a firm gold standard. You have right. sort of the, the defining, you know, Soviet U.S. Yes, that's right. world. And now we have this. We're in a very transitional world. Yeah. Yeah. There are no clear rules. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating world. And, and that, that, that lack of, of, of explicit structure happens at the, at the national level, but it also happens at the global level. And that's what these leaders are trying to grapple with. So, Caitlin, I, I have to say, the G20, covering the G20 meeting, this is an assignment. Like, I've been asked a few times, like, Adam, why don't you go cover the G20? And I always try to avoid it because as a reporter, like, you can't – yes, there's big, important things happening in some room that you can't get to even with your press pass. You're it's like, all blocked off. It's all and... blocked off. Yeah. You're just waiting for a press conference or a press release. And, I mean, even when it was in Moscow or, you know – Lots of cool countries I, I didn't want to go. And now it's in Pittsburgh, which... What do you have against Pittsburgh? No, I mean, I, I've been there. I like it. It's a perfectly nice city, but I'm not, like, dying to get myself to Pittsburgh. You know what I mean? Clearly, you've never had a sandwich at Primanti Brothers. No, I never... What? It, no, I haven't. Well, maybe if you'd had one, it would change your mind. 
they're just really, saying. They're really good. Yeah, amazing. All right. I'm convinced. You know what? I'm going to go to the airport right now. I'm going to go to Pittsburgh. I'm going to cover the G20. Too late. Too late. NPR already sent Scott Horsley. And of course, I knew that because you and I, Caitlin, talked to Scott earlier this morning. That's right. Scott Horsley is, of course, NPR's White House correspondent. We talked to him earlier today about what it's like to be there. So, Scott, you are in Pittsburgh. Uh, You are just one of the many important people who are in Pittsburgh right now. Uh, yes, far down on the pecking order for sure. Yeah. So, so who's there? I mean, I think everyone knows what's going on, but but just tell us what's going on. Well, there are leaders of the the G20 countries here. That's the 20 biggest industrial and developing nations, and they're here to uh, talk about how to head off financial crises like the one that we're hopefully now coming out of, and to put the world's economy on a more sustainable growth trajectory. This is a very sophisticated gathering. I can imagine. Which which leads me to believe that you got as far away from that gathering as possible. I do. <laughs> I want to say for, for years now, when I was international economics correspondent, every year when there was a G20 meeting, you know, I would think, oh, I should go. And then I would always find an excuse not to go because I just pictured myself sitting in some hotel conference room with 100 other reporters watching really boring speeches on TV being nowhere we, we near. Don't, we don't actually watch the speeches. You don't? Okay. No. <laughs> but but it, it is pretty But hot. otherwise, that's a pretty accurate description. It's just you and a bunch of reporters sitting around. That's right. And somewhere nearby here, momentous economic decisions are being made. So, um, so what do you do when you are a reporter in Pittsburgh? There's the 20 most powerful people in the world uh, sitting around talking, and you have no access to them. What I tried to do, Adam, was really go to somebody who had an overview of, of this G20 summit, someone who could sort of give you the big picture, uh, the whole international scope. So I wound up at the Church Brew Works. That's a, a historic church on Liberty Avenue here in Pittsburgh that has been refashioned as a brew pub. And uh, that's where they cooked up something called the B20. It's, it's a beer made with ingredients from many, if not all, of the G20 nations. Now, you can imagine this is a, a, an enormously complicated, in-depth task that involves uh, lots of frameworks and timetables to come up with something like that. At least you'd think that'd be the case, but Master Brewer Brant Duvick told me it really was not all that formal. We sort of just winged it and uh, got a list of uh, spices and uh, chief exports of the countries of uh, the G20. We came up with 14 good ones that we could get commonly everywhere, went down to Penzi Spices, got everything, played around with it a little bit to see what it would taste like, and uh, just went with it and brewed a seven-barrel batch. By the way, that's 31 gallons to the barrel. So they made about 256 gallons of this B20 brew, and uh, I got to taste some of it. It's, it's, uh, it's not bad. So what are some of the spices in there that he was talking about? Well, well, some of them are, you know, hops and malt, the kind of stuff you would expect to, to, to be in beer, hops and malt from Canada or Britain or whatnot. But there was also a charnushka from India. That's the black seeds that give garam masala its flavor. Uh, there are also the black seeds on Jewish rye bread, which is kind of an interesting uh, uh, note. Turkey supplied something called mahalab, which is made from the pits of sour cherries. Have you ever had sour cherry pit beer before? No. I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, Brewmaster Dubovic, you know, he, he, uh, 
he mentioned that they tried to get the major exports uh, of these of these different countries represented, and that's that's kind of uh, central because exports and imports are a big part of what the G20 is all about. Part of putting that economy on a more sustainable growth path is to try to have a more balance, uh, so you don't have some countries like the U.S. Uh, saving too little and importing too much, and other countries like China, for example, exporting too much and uh, saving too too much. Uh, they're, they're trying to have a more balanced economy, and balance turns out is something that Brewmaster Dubovic knows a lot about. Without balance, the beer could uh, actually just go to one side. Uh, if you're using too many hops, all you're going to get is that hop bitterness. If you're using too much malt, you're just going to get too much of the malt. So we definitely strive for balance in everything we brew here. Now, Scott, I don't know if you know this, but Planet Money's own Caitlin Kenny is a newly christened brewmaster herself. It's true. I've been home brewing. And, and bringing it in. It's been delicious. Thank you. And it's very true what he says about the hops and the malt. Really, balance is the key. You don't want too prominent of one flavor when you're brewing. Nah. Have you tried brewing garam masala beer? No, I haven't. But as soon as you said that, I was like, hmm, I have some of that home in my cupboard. <laughs> so what? tell me what it tasted like. Did it taste in balance? Did it taste like the ideal global economy in which there's not huge trade gaps, trade deficits, trade surpluses? Well, it, it, it tasted good. It was. It's kind of heavy. It's sort of a, a heavy English brown ale. It was a lot of alcohol, about 7% alcohol. But, yeah, it wasn't wasn't too sweet, wasn't too hoppy. Um it, 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 they did not actually manage to get all 20 countries uh, represented. Apparently, the, some, of the, some of the Islamic countries were not eager to participate in this little brewing experiment. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. Although Indonesia, of course, the world's most populous Islamic country, apparently had no problem supplying jackfruit. So it's got jackfruit in the B20 beer, uh, buckwheat from Russia, uh, pumpkin from right here in the U.S. of A. Pumpkin was the U.S. thing? Well, pumpkin and Chinook hops. Really? And did it taste like beer? Did it taste like some weird soup? No, it absolutely tasted like beer. Wow. So, Scott- and I think that's that's you know there's a lesson for that. We 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 can all um, all get along within the within the brewers that. I will just think of the of the taste of the B twenty whenever I think about global discord. So so Scott, I guess the, is the big news out of the G twenty that now we're moving from a world where the G seven or the G eight, in other words, the seven or eight richest countries in the world, make the key decisions about the world economy. Now we're we're adding thirteen or twelve countries, and and the G twenty is going to be the main body. Can you explain what that difference is? That's right. We have now had an agreement by the members of the G twenty that. This, going forward, will be the go-to body for international economic cooperation. Now, you could say, in, in, in some sense, that's just a recognition of the world as it is today because major fast-growing economies like China and India and Brazil exist somewhere between 8 and 20, and they were, they were not included when the G8 was meeting. So uh, to, to, to say that now the G20 will be the go-to body is just really to say uh, we're moving the economic cooperation into the 21st century and recognizing, hey, there's, uh, there's billions of people out there that we need to take account of. Uh, I, I remember after the G8 summit in L'Aquila, Italy, earlier this year, President Obama was asked about what's the right size international body to, to have these kinds of meetings, because obviously the more countries that are included, it does get more unwieldy, it's a, it's a little bit more difficult, but they want to have representation from a, a broad swath of the, the economic might out there in the world. And the president said, you know, whatever 
place, whatever rank your country is in, that's what you think ought to be the size. So if you're the 15th largest economy, you want to have the G15. <laughs> right. If you're the 68th, you want the G68. Why isn't it the G68? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like the what we used to call the big three automakers. Right. Now, when I heard this announcement, I my the cynic in me said, oh, so now when there's some meaningless, vague statement of international cooperation that doesn't actually change anything, it's not going to be seven or eight guys in suits standing there making it. It's going to be 20. That's right, and it may be all the more vague and meaningless in order to get consensus among the 20. But to the extent that they are making uh, meaningful moves, obviously you want to have those major developing countries. Man, you guys are really cynical. You have not covered enough bureaucratic government press conferences, I think. That's true. That does suck the soul out of you. You know what, though? All that talk about beer really made me thirsty. I got to say, I've been picturing all day in in my taste uh, memory the uh, really amazing beers you brought in. I was under the impression that would be a regular thing. Maybe Friday afternoons you'd always... Well, I don't know if you noticed. I've been a little busy here. On top of my regular job, you guys have me filling in, hosting this podcast, and I haven't really had time. Yeah, you love it. Yeah, I know. It's fine. But uh, let's get out of here so I can go home and brew some more. Okay. So that's going to be it for us today. Please visit our blog, npr.org slash money. We have this great essay there from Glenn Pizzolarusso. Fans of our story, The Giant Pool of Money, may remember him. He was the guy who partied with the B-list celebrities. Tara Reid, Cuba Gooding Jr. The kid from Filthy Rich Cattle Drive. And he talks about how losing millions of dollars has actually changed his life dramatically. And you can hear more from Glenn and a bunch of the other people in that piece on This American Life this weekend, right, Adam? You guys have a big show coming up. Yeah, actually, Alex is at work right now finishing the touches. I recorded the tracks yesterday. It's basically half of the original giant pool of money, and then half of the hour will be us catching up with people. You've heard some of that on the podcast, but there's a lot more to come. It, it, I, Alex says it's better than the original. I feel like wow. it's certainly really good. I don't know if it's better than the original, but it's really fun catching up with people. Well, let's see what the Planet Money audience thinks. You guys can send us your comments, questions, concerns, and pictures. We love your pictures. PlanetMoney at NPR.org. That's going to be it for us today. I'm Caitlin Kenny, And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>